Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. For most people, the desire to be known exceeds our desire to be loved. Who we are as individuals, how we reckon with our personal abilities and disabilities, is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious, in a conversation with my friend Dr. Dan Gottlieb. Dan's a clinical psychologist who lives and works near Philadelphia. He's a man with quadriplegia, paralyzed from the neck down as a result of an automobile accident he suffered in 1979. He's also the host of Voices in the Family, a weekly public radio program originating from WHYY in Philadelphia, and also the author of two articles a month in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Because of his physical condition, Dan thought he probably would not live to see his young grandson, Sam, grow to be a man. When Sam was diagnosed with a severe form of autism several years ago, Dan decided to write a series of letters to his grandson. So his book, Letters to Sam, A Grandfather's Lessons on Love, Loss, and the Gifts of Life, is a collection of intimate and compassionate letters in which Dan shares his thoughts, observations, and experiences gained from his 27 years with quadriplegia and his professional life as a clinical psychologist. He's got a pretty interesting website you can visit at www.drdangottlieb.com. Dr. Dan Gottlieb and I visited by phone from his home near Philadelphia in mid-April 2006. Dan Gottlieb, welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. It's nice to be here. It's nice to be talking with you. It's been a long time. Yeah. Your book, Letters to Sam, tell us about the background and why you decided to write to your grandson. When he was born, I was a 56-year-old quadriplegic. And I knew in all probability that I would not live to see him grow, mature. So I wanted to tell him some stories about what I learned about life, about some of his relatives that he would never meet or get to know. And I wanted to share some of my experiences with him and what I've learned both from my perspective as a quadriplegic and from my perspective as a psychologist. So I began writing these letters with no intent to necessarily publish them. And then about 18 months into his birth, after his birth, he stopped babbling. And it seems as though he was not listening anymore. And we had hoped, that I had hoped, that he was hearing impaired because the alternatives were pretty depressing. And in fact, he wasn't hearing impaired. He was diagnosed as being on the autistic spectrum. Um, And then the letters became more urgent to me. There was even more I had to tell him about what it means to be different from everybody else, what it means to be seen differently or treated differently, and how to cope with feelings of alienation and, and solitude. I wanted to share these things with him, 
knowing he might not ever read them or understand them. Let's talk about Sam's uh, difference. What is autism? Well, it's a brain disorder. Specifics aren't quite known. I mean, we're spending billions of dollars now understanding it. But it it is a brain disorder, and it affects people's speech, perception, judgment, even affects their motor skills. Sam, for example, has wonderful fine motor skills and pretty uh, wonderful gross motor skills. He's a good little golfer um, and pretty poor fine motor skills. He can't open a Ziploc box bag or has trouble tying his shoe even even as he's just about to become six. Um, certain, depending on the level of impairment, certain sounds will will send them into a tailspin because the stimulation is so painful. Or touches, Sam, when we flew on an airplane to Disney World, the sensation of the uh, lap belt on his legs was agony for me. couldn't bear it. Um, Sam's got some very rigid behaviors. Um, he needs to have his crowns lined up just so. When he comes home from, from school, he's got to put on his um, Spider-Man pajamas or else he gets very upset. So it's these kinds of things. And as they get older, they don't pick up subtle cues. So they have difficulty in peer relationships and social relationships. So what have you been telling Sam in your letters to him? Well, my letters start off telling him what it means to have a life, that you're the product of, of love, and your chances of being here are slim, that life is precious and it shouldn't be wasted. I tell him stories about what it means to be a man. I tell him stories about his grandmother, my wife, who, as our marriage deteriorated, um, love gave way to anger and hatred, and she became quite ill after she left the marriage, and we reconnected, and uh, it was tender, our reconnection. She died a couple of years thereafter, and, and the story I wanted to tell him was that sometimes hatred comes so quickly, and it's so easy. Love is harder than hatred, but more genuine, more lasting, more spiritual. Um, I feel grateful that when she died, I was able to reclaim the love I felt for her way back when. You talk about how most of us have a longing for love and closeness that can never be fulfilled. How do we live with that longing? I think that's the most direct path to serenity, is to learn to live with longings, with grace. Mary, we all have longings that will never be fulfilled. And we all have this ideal dream of what we would like our life to be, what we'd like our partner to be, what we'd like us to be. We'd like life on no everlasting. These are all longings. They're understandable. We all have them. We're not going to meet them. So we have one of two choices here. We can rail against the gods, fight against life, 
wine that things are unjust, we can act out impulsively to try to get our needs met. Or we can live with what we long for. Don't fight against life. One of my letters to Sam was a very powerful lesson I learned when he invited me to play golf with him on his fifth birthday. Not play with him, but watch him and his dad play golf. And that was the first time I had been on a golf course in 25 years. I used to love golf. I played with my dad. And it was so painful to me to lose the ability to play golf that I never went on a golf course. Well, when Sam asked me, of course, I couldn't say no. And I went on the course, and I had forgotten how beautiful the course was and how the smells and and visions was just magnificent. It just fills you up. And then I watched my precious grandson put a ball down, swing a club, and actually hit the ball. And I had never felt more filled and fulfilled in my life. Thrilled to be on this in this gorgeous environment with my precious grandson, who was just delighted at his own skills. And after a while, I began to remember what the grass felt like under my feet, what the club felt like in my hand, what my body felt like when I swung it. And I ached inside and longed for what I had. And if I was alone, I would have wept hard over what I've lost. And a few minutes later, I heard Sam say, great shot, Dad. And instantly, I was back on the golf course. And I was smelling the smells and watching my grandson and his dad, and I was filled with joy again. Five minutes later, same thing happened. I started to think about the future, and I wonder if we could rig up a golf club that I could hold with Velcro, And again, I felt great pain because it can never be what it was. And five minutes later, I was snapped back into the moment that I was living in then and, and felt happy again. So many of us, and this is what I said to Sam in my letter, so many of us are busy trying to change the life we had or trying to live the life we want that we miss out on living the life we're living that we're living in the past or the future. And what we have is what we have, and what we have is precious, whether whether the moment is filled like it was on the golf course or whether it's pain or whether it's sadness or emptiness. It's what we have in the moment, and any feeling we have in the moment is not going to last. It's temporary, like life itself. Dan Gottlieb, author of Letters to Sam, in your letter bright light and still water. You have an interesting analogy about the kidneys and the mind and the filtering process that goes on in one, but not so much in the other. Yeah, I I thought the mind was the same as a a kidney, only poorly functioning. Look, the, the function of the kidney is to filter out waste matter from the blood. And you know, it filters out, I don't recall, 10 and 20%, and it goes in the bladder. The rest is nutrients. The mind filters out nothing. If we have a thought, 
or an emotion, we think it's real, and we chase it around the block. So if we get the thought in our head that um, Aunt so-and-so is angry at us because we haven't called her in two weeks, we're going to chase that around the block. Either we're going to feel guilty for not calling her, and then we're going to feel angry at her because she's entitled, or then we're going to be defensive because, after all, we were so busy, and on and on and on we go. Meanwhile, all that material really belonged in the bladder in the first place. There were just thoughts that pop into our head. We overvalue our thoughts. We overvalue our emotions. All they are is thoughts and emotions. So how is one to deal with the compelling thoughts that some people may say, this makes me crazy? Right. It makes you crazy because you are overvaluing your thoughts and emotions. Then how do we filter the ones to which we should not pay heed? Stand outside of them. You are not your mind. Your mind is part of you. Most of us humans spend our lives living inside of our minds as though what's happening in there is real. We are not our minds. And I find it very interesting to watch my mind. Sometimes my mind is like a chipmunk on steroids, and it's darting all over the place. And sometimes my mind is relatively relaxed. Sometimes my mind is developing comedy routines. And sometimes it's casting a keen eye over the nature of the world. That doesn't mean any of them are accurate or any of them are who I am. It's just what my mind is doing moment to moment. None of these things are a call to action. I don't have to do anything with them. Just watching my mind do what it does. Let me take a moment and say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Dr. Dan Gottlieb from his home near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's the author of a book called Letters to Sam, a grandfather's lesson on love, loss, and the gifts of life. Dan Gottlieb is a practicing psychologist in the Philadelphia area and the host of Voices in the Family, which is broadcast weekly on WHYY, a public radio station in Philadelphia. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dan Gottlieb, you have talked from time to time about how you are sometimes overwhelmed by depression as a result of your quadriplegia. How do you filter those thoughts? To get out of one's mind, to be able to spend one's days and evenings just observing the mind and not being reactive to it, takes about 40 to 50 years of practice. So I obviously don't do that. I try to do it. When I was depressed, it was before I under really understood nature of the mind or the difference between the mind and the self. I was lost in my depression, as I think most who get depressed. I'm not talking about feeling depressed, like we feel when we've suffered a loss. I'm talking about a clinical depression, a brain disorder. It's agony. I mean, it's agony and it's consuming. And I was lost inside of it for about two years. 
And this was after your accident? It was about five years after the accident. It wasn't right after the accident. It was about five years. For the first five years, I was busy learning to be a quadriplegic. You know, the learning curve was pretty steep. Once it plateaued, then everything sunk in. And then the depression started to hit. I got treated for the depression with medication and psychotherapy. And now every now and then, I feel waves of depression. Depression with a small d. I've never experienced another clinical depression. But when I do begin to experience depression with a small d, I honor it. I respect it. I observe it. If it lasts too long, I do something about it, whether it's psychotherapy or medication. Um, But I do observe it. And the only way I would know that it's happening on the early stages is I'm able to observe my mind. I don't rationalize it or tell myself that I'm not feeling it or tell myself that I shouldn't be feeling it or even trying to figure out why I'm feeling it. I just notice it. I notice its depth and breadth. I notice the vulnerability I feel when it's going on. So what can you tell us about filtering it so that it doesn't become overwhelming? Well, you can only exercise moderate control over something like a depression. And if it goes unchecked, it can be overwhelming. But if you monitor it, if you pay attention to it, you can then go get treatment for it. But the issue we were talking about is really moods a mood of depression, a mood of anguish or despair or emptiness, a mood of joy, any any moods, a longing. If we can observe these and not wrap our arms around them and simply experience them, generally they're not going to stay too, too long. They're going to stay as long as they stay, and they'll pass, they'll leave when they're ready. These emotions, especially the negative ones, are not calls to action. If you feel pain or sadness or empty or betrayed or even abandoned, it's not a call to action. What freedom you would find, any of us, if when we felt abandoned, we could tolerate that emotion? then we own ourselves at that point. That's probably easier for an older person to do than it is for a younger person. Depends on the age when you say younger person. I would say it can be done for anybody over 20, 25 to learn to tolerate feelings of abandonment. I'm not talking about working through anything, Barry. I'm talking about understanding the feeling that the feeling of abandonment is not necessarily about what's been done to you, necessarily. But the issue is what abandonment feels like. How do you feel it in your body? Dan Gottlieb, in your letter to Sam called Fig Leaves, you talk about the emotion of shame and how it can also be an overwhelming feeling that sometimes causes people to recoil. I don't think there's any emotion 
I don't think any there's any emotion that's much more painful than shame. It's a sense of exposure. And because it causes so much pain, humans tend to be very reactive to it. So that when we feel shame, we either hide or withdraw. We attack back. There's a lot of violence that's that's ultimately shame-based. The one thing we tend not to do with shame is sit with it. Shame's a human emotion. We all feel it. So the story I tell about shame to Sam is a couple of years ago, there was a young woman about 17 years old who was in my office, and she was filled with shame. I believe it was about her weight. She was embarrassed about how heavy she was, how she looked in clothes, so on and so forth. And I just sat there quietly feeling her pain and shame. It was awful. And as I'm taking this in, I looked down at my lap, and I could see that my catheter was leaking. And my pants were wet. And I couldn't imagine a worse position to be in with a 17-year-old young woman. I wouldn't have been so embarrassed if it was a grown woman, if it was a man of any age, if it was a little girl, but there's something about a woman that age that just made me feel so embarrassed and humiliated. And I'm looking down in my lap, and I glance up at her, and I see that she could see what I was looking at. She saw that my pants were red. And I felt such pain that my eyes must have had tears in them, and she could see. She came over to me and helped me, and I held her, both of us, human, feeling this great shame about things we couldn't control. After a few moments, she sat down. We didn't say much of anything, but I think both of us were changed as a result of that moment. Shame's a human experience of being exposed for who we are. It's painful. Shame comes up when we're unable to show one another our best sides. And you say that in every one of your speeches, the hunger to be known exceeds the hunger to be loved. Yes. Yes. Shame comes up not when we're unable to show people our best sides. Shame comes up easily and often when we are afraid of our worst sides. Most people I know spend their lives trying to be somebody they're not out of fear of discovering who they really are. We need to know our worst sides, and we need to live with them. There's something about our culture, Barry, this Judeo-Christian culture, that we think we're defective. When we have our worst sides, we need to hide them or fix them or beat ourselves up until they go away. They're part of us. We need to own them and embrace them with compassion, with joy even. So that we become known to others. So, so that we can become fully known to others. Because if you're not fully known to other, the word love is meaningless. 
Because if somebody says they love you, and yet they don't fully know you, you don't feel loved. You can't, because you're not loved for who you are. You're loved for who you show yourself to be. Or who the other person thinks they would like you to be. Exactly. And, you know, that's one of the beauties of Sam with his autism and Pop, me, with his quadriplegia. We are able to hide less, Sam and I. Who we are is really more visible. I mean, if I feel someone's love, I've got much more trust that they love me. And Sam can, too. You're doing an interesting thing with this book. You're donating the profits to autism foundations. Autism and other children's foundations. Why did you decide to do that? I want the children of this world to live in a world that's more gentle than today's world, that's more loving, more compassionate and understanding. Barry, this book is really a prayer. I, I want those who read the book, if 5% of the people who read the book are softer human beings, know how to love better, know how to love more generously, then the book in my life will just have so much more meaning to me. And that's what the money is about. The money is about taking care of our future, taking care of children with autism and other children, too. I want to give some of the money to uh, the Boys and Girls Clubs of America who are doing a wonderful job. And there's so many wonderful children's programs and foundations. I want to do whatever I can to support them. I have enough money. You know, I can buy my clothes. I can feed myself and, uh, you know, I have a roof over my head. And I can even contribute to my grandson's college. Dr. Dan Gottlieb, author of Letters to Sam, A Grandfather's Lesson on Love, Loss, and the Gifts of Life. Thanks for being with us on Radio Curious. And can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Let me see. I'm reading a book now that I'm really enjoying. Um, It's called Eat, Pray, Love, and I can't remember the author's name, but I'm really enjoying it. And, of course, a a book that I thought was a profound piece of fiction is called Letters to Pi. Which you mention in Letters to Sam. Yes, I did. Dan Gottlieb, thanks for being with us on Radio Curious. You're more than welcome. Thank you, Barry. Dr. Dan Gottlieb is a clinical psychologist with quadriplegia and the author of Letters to Sam, A Grandfather's Lessons on Love, Loss, and the Gifts of Life, a book of letters to his grandson, a young boy with a severe form of autism. The books that Dan Gottlieb recommends are Eat, Pray, and Love, One Woman's Search for Everything Across Italy, India, and Indonesia by Elizabeth Gilbert, and The Life of Pi by Jan Martel. Dan's the host of Voices in the Family, a weekly public radio program which originates from WHYY in Philadelphia, and he's also the author of twice-monthly articles in the Philadelphia Inquirer. You may learn more about Dan and his work at his website, www.dan.com 
drdangottlieb, that's G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B dot com. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.